Andy Dale from David. Welcome to Button Up Podcast. How are you? Good. How are you? Thanks for having me on. Excellent. It's formerly La David. That's correct. We want to get into that, but we always like to find out where you're from, what got you into this this racket, and find out some more about the company. Racket's a good word for it. <laughs> uh, from Toronto, Canada, born and raised. My grandfather was actually a leather worker for 50 years. Uh, it's how he made his way as a, an orphan in, in pre-war Europe and through the war. And when he came to Canada as a refugee after the war, he restarted his leather goods business. Um, David is actually my, my middle name, and it, it's a way to link the familial connection to leather um, back into the company, which I'm doing in a more modern e-commerce way than my grandfather. But um, it's in his ethos that uh, we operate. Wow. So did the business carry on from when he was making it? Uh, his factory shut down in the late 70s when free trade with China um, was starting up um, and all the high-end goods were going overseas and he didn't want to do that. And so he ended up shutting down after um, doing really well for a number of decades. And I was actually in, in finance uh, on Canada's Wall Street, which is called Bay Street. Um, for seven years, I was... Uh, fortunate to ascend to, you know, partner levels in my in my mid-20s. And I felt that um, even though people were saying that I could sort of relax and that I had it made, it just wasn't wasn't it for me. And I needed to do something that really embodied my, my creativity and also my ethos in terms of how I want to do business and relate to other people. So I quit and I took my savings and I started my life again. Wow. Sounds like you hear that about from most ex-lawyers and finance guys is mm. they're like, I got to this thing and then I was like, oh, no, not for me. Yeah, a lot of lot of like bankers turned entrepreneurs mm. on the show. Yeah, that's mm. – uh, I think uh, probably a lot of us are, are searching for something at some point or looking to reconnect to something – something deeper that that lacked in in that career. I actually still love finance in terms of the discipline of investing and the analysis. A lot of that skill set still applies, um, but the way of doing business is certainly really different from that Wall Street world. So did you quit with this idea of I'm going to do leather goods again? I, I didn't. I quit saying I'm going to be an entrepreneur. And I took a few months off and then I did some reflection. Um, I got some executive coaching actually in it really came up that I had this natural affinity uh, to fashion. And at the same time, one of the leading fashion accelerators in Toronto invited me in to be sort of a coach to other young companies on matters of finance and strategy. And I was teaching these other young companies and I was also doing some designing on the side. And whenever I did stuff related to bags, there was just so much interest amongst these these other companies and what I was doing. And I decided there was enough spark in the idea when I looked at the market for for men's quality bags that I decided to give it a go. And that's how, that's initially how the company got started. So did you grow up around a lot of crafts and, and leather making or that was, was that, was there a gap in between? There's a, there was a, a gap of a generation. So my, my mom and her siblings um, didn't pursue anything related to this. So I grew up with a lot of stories around persistence and integrity and quality. And my grandfather focused mostly on shoes. And so we have some of his, um, you know, slippers like framed and um, his memoir uh, came out a couple of years ago around the time I was starting the company. So all these pieces were coming together around, um, it's almost a romanticized way of thinking about what he did because it was a lot harder. I enter it with a, a lot more privilege and, and and a lot more benefit of, you know, technology and savings and stuff than, than he had. But it was more about the aura and the story um, versus technical knowledge of what leather was um, that I had to start from scratch. 
So when, when you were looking at what was available out there, because you started with the weekend bag, mm-hmm. what what did you see that was missing? Yeah, in, in men's, uh, I saw a few things. First, I saw that there was a lack of function in high-end pieces with a refined aesthetic. And so um, the ability to fuse, and I have, you know, the weekender here, this one's already a couple years old, um, you know, the ability to attach to your luggage or have expandable capacity or have internal laptop sleeves. Um, those are things that uh, that existed in utilitarian bags. Um, but when you got into things that were more refined, they just didn't really exist. And if, if you did want them, you might be paying like $2,000. Uh, and I didn't want to do that either. So that's the second thing I realized was super high price points, price inflation, poor value. And the third thing is, is um, quarter our ethos was a lack of responsibility and transparency in the in the supply chain so leather is traditionally really really toxic um you know in bangladesh for example where a lot of leather is made the average life expectancy in the country broadly is 72 but in the tanneries they die by age 50. so i wasn't going to leave this world of finance where i thought the ethics could have been better to enter an industry that was also toxic in a different way so i knew that we had to do things differently and that led to me moving into a German village for a little bit with this renowned tannery and creating our own proprietary leather that actually uses 80% less water and 75% less energy than other leathers. Whether customers care about that or not, some do, some don't, but it's just the way I want to do business. But certainly we can also compete on the durability and the waterproofness and the suppleness. Um, and certainly all men when they're buying care about, about that kind of stuff. So what year are you incubating the idea? Yeah. So it was an idea in my head, uh, mid to late 2016, we did like a beta production run. That's um, how I came into contact with Brock. Brock Mm -hmm. got got one of our last first ever duffel bags. I actually told my friend he wasn't getting his um, because I, you know, I managed to connect with this great influencer. So thank you for for that. I think that video has been like viewed a hundred thousand times or something. Yeah. I think it's got like over 300,000 now. It's, it's really. Oh, is that the travel, the travel video? That's the, uh, it's how to choose what to look for when you're buying a leather bag. Oh yeah. Yeah. And I still, I just used that bag a few weeks ago to take the train down to DC. It's a great bag. Thank you so much. Yeah, Yeah. I'm so glad. Um, so 2017, we did that beta run, and then we officially launched in 2018. So we're kind of a year and a half into being in market. And why'd you drop the law? Why do you why do you drop the French? You know what? Um, even though we're still proudly made in Montreal, and we have a bit of a European flair. It was a little bit complicated to pronounce and and remember. And it's just as we stepped into our brand and launched our new website earlier this year, it seemed like a cleaner, more refined. Um, and more masculine way to present ourselves, even though the products uh, are the same. You know that movie that just came out, Four vs. Ferrari? No. There's a movie that came out, Four vs. Ferrari, with Christian Bale and Matt Damon. Everywhere in the world, it's called Le Mans 66, but in the U.S., it's called Four vs. Ferrari. <laughs> really? Because Americans aren't going to go see a movie about a French race. They did that with Harry <laughs> Potter, too. They changed the names of the, of the books when they came here, some of them. So, mm-hmm. yeah, the American market's different. So as you're getting this off the ground, what were some of the things you learned as you were – building a brand from scratch. Yeah. I, I mean, you, you kind of, um, F everything, uh, up as you go. Um, the number one thing you learn is really to have customer empathy. So you have to fuse what your vision is and your, your design style with what they're looking for. So I learned that I will never compromise on my ethos, but certain stylistic choices that I might have a more, you know, wild taste or artistic taste in certain things, um, the men's market might not be there. So you might have to lean more, more classic, for example. So customer empathy is, is core. Um, second that, um, 
it, it's capital intensive to, to get a business like this off the ground. So we're really proud of our frugality and bootstrapping along. Um, we were told early on that there's like much expense in traditional marketing platforms. And we really have grown by word of mouth and working with the right influencers like, like you two who authentically believe in what we're doing and are willing to um, share their authentic voices in talking about the product honestly, including what they might perceive to be its flaws. So being thoughtful and frugal about marketing instead of sort of spraying and praying is another big one. Um, and then three, I mean, it's it's you hear this all the time, but like it's all about people, the amount of um, agency types and social media types we've like turned over um, because, um, you know, they have great resumes, but it just doesn't fit with our ethos in terms of the type of content they want to do or how they're operating. Um, so really being thoughtful about um, the hiring the hiring process to make sure that the people aren't just qualified and nice people, but they actually align with what you want to do and the vision you have for the brand. So did you start with, you were like, I want to make a weekender, that's what I need, or like, how did you progress the line a little bit? Yeah, when we analyzed the market, it seemed like there were kind of like three to five core styles you need to um, develop to have a core men's leather bag line. So we said, let's start with two of those. Let's start with um, a slim briefcase and let's start with uh, a weekender. So we developed those first. Um, we proceeded to develop um, like a travel passport wallet, um, a backpack. Uh, we developed uh, a women's bag because the men were saying, my wife loves my bag. And so even though we're a men's oriented brand, we actually have a women's bag that is close to sold out. It's done really well. My wife is the number one thief of my things. <laughs> right, right. So women who are more comfortable either with a more unisex aesthetic or they're looking to men's brands. Who, that are primarily men that are starting to branch into women um, have enjoyed our bags. Though men seem to not want anything that is associated with what is originally a women's brand. So that's why we started um, with men, even though women are by far a bigger market. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, we sort of knocked off a couple of the core styles and then we, we launch a couple of new ones a year and always have stuff in the works. How did you convince that tannery to work with you? You were just some random Canadian dude, right? <laughs> yeah, I remember they were impressed by. First of all, I made I made them a really good, like thoughtful PowerPoint presentation. Um, it took me like three to four months to get them on the phone, even. Um, and then when I got them on the phone, I said, "Can I come visit you?" And they were impressed by that. They're like, "If you're going to fly out." Um, by the way, you can't fly to us. Like you're going to have to fly to Frankfurt and then take this train and that train. And like we're way in the countryside. So I did that on my own expense. I came armed with a presentation. And most importantly, they were um, they were impressed with the vision I have for the company. So there, there are a lot of people as you like this. This market is littered with with brands and mom and pop brands. A lot of them might have the more Americana look to the leather. And I admire all, all the people who have the love of craft. I think it's great that we're having this return to quality. But David is really about demonstrating that the highest quality, best products can also be made with the most integrity and that that way of doing business can apply not just to bags, but all sorts of other categories uh, in the men's world. And so bags are our first example, but that vision for the company really applied to the tannery because they're, you know, they've done footwear, they've done bags, they've done belt leathers, and they're the first tannery in the world to operate in the way that, you know, we happen to also want to operate. So there's a strong cultural alignment and they actually granted us um, North American exclusivity 
um, over all of their leather making technology in the bag space and also obviously exclusivity over our own leather, which is, you know, forever proprietary to us, but we actually have exclusivity um, more deeply with them um, on a North American basis. And there's no yellow pages for German or European tanneries. Like what, what was it? It just happenstance you came across a very uh, forward-thinking tannery? Uh, that's a great question. Yeah, there's actually a point where I thought I might have to um, – shut the company down before it even got off the ground because I thought, well, like I want to do things ethically and so I can't use leather because that's like an animal. I didn't know the nuances at that point. I'm like, okay, so these vegan leathers and then you dive in. There's no such thing as vegan leather. Like if vegan's supposed to mean like ethical and good, like the vegan leathers are just, you know, PU and plastic. Um, latex. That, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and I eat a lot of vegan food and I think, you know, maybe we should eat more or less meat as a society and more plants, but like there's no such thing as vegan leather. So I said, well, leathers in my family, is, a way, is there a way I can do leather that I could actually go to sleep at night with? And um, we started asking around and our manufacturer in Montreal, um, who we have a close relationship with, who had suggested originally guys like your styles are great, but maybe you should go to, maybe you should go to China and you'll make way more money. We're like, no, 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 we don't want to go to China. Um, like we have this ethical ethos about what we're doing. And he actually recommended that we check out this region in Germany because he had heard at a trade show that there's this tannery up to like this certain way of doing business. And we dug in and we found the phone number and, um, started calling and, and it turns out they're like a large operation, but they don't, they don't need business from a small North American brand. So it just took a a long time to get in the door. Yeah. I mean, they kind of took a bet on you, right? Because a factory like that, they're not going to really like turn a profit on that first production runs. They're kind of expecting, they have confidence that you're going to grow into something. Yeah. uh, I think we're a a case study in their, in their boardroom actually, uh, about how to build a forward thinking brand using their product. We have a lot of content on them on our website and Mm. that's not something they, they asked us to do, but I think it's kind of like the quid pro quo for, um, you know, and to have gratitude to them for, for taking us on in that way. I mean, we're still probably in the context of the customers they, they deal with extremely small. Like they were Adidas's go-to tannery in the seventies before Adidas outsourced everything to Asia. Um, they've worked with other leading global brands like German Bullskin is some of the top, top leather in the world. And you look at like, you know, a lot of people talk about Italy and France and Germany as really the nexus of really high quality leathers. And so, um, yeah, I think it's more about sharing, sharing values than it is about, um, how much we're worth uh, as a percentage of their top line. Um, That's something that I find fascinating about leather is there you obviously get what you pay for at the price points, but even looking at where it comes from within the regions of Italy makes a huge difference. Like Spanish leather is very different from French leather mm-hmm. and Italian leather and German. Like the difference in, in the regions is huge. And then when you see that a bag is made from leather in Asia, like I'm sure there's regional differences there, but I haven't had as much exposure to it. But uh, I also talking to the Horween guys, yeah. I did the, the factory tour there, and what they were telling us is the way that uh, cows are slaughtered now is the hides aren't as useful from these mega factories because it's just like this tiny little portion of their business to get rid of the hides. And so you have to have somebody that really focuses on making a high-quality hide. You can't just take anything from a mass manufacturing farm. Yes. Um I'm sure you've seen a lot of news about like, you know, this notion of slaughtering the Amazon or the Amazon's burning. And while there's some hyperbole in that, I mean, the truth is that is that we're destroying vast swaths of rainforest for like low quality cattle ranching. And a lot of the tanneries, even ones in, in Italy, frankly, will like take those Brazilian hides and import them. And there are very few 
end-to-end tanneries left in the world, meaning like they'll take local meat byproducts and tan, and, and so they're delivered fresh just in time for the tannery and tan and dye them fresh. And that's what our, our tannery is one of the last um, in Europe in terms of end-to-end um, local um, sourcing of hi- and production of hides. And that makes a big difference to quality because if the, if the cattle, I mean, we use bulls, but if broadly if the cattle are ranching in an unhealthy way, then like they might be smaller or like they might have more markings or, you know, hopefully you don't have a lot of scratches or bullet holes or anything like that. But like you want to um, ethically ensure animal fairness, but also it impacts quality because when the animals raise properly and then you get to take the offtake of that um, meat, it's just a much better... Um, quality hide and our hides are like 45 to 55 square feet which is like really really huge and we get a lot out of them in terms of use yeah we were talking to uh, mark Collenberg from a moral code a few weeks ago mm-hmm. and we we're talking about like these buzzwords that are in the industry like any leather goods handcrafted for example mm-hmm. i feel like one especially with leather bags is vegetable tans mm-hmm. and a lot of people don't really know what it means but it's listed on the product page and it sounds good mm-hmm. so like what, what are your thoughts about the different tanning processes yeah and like I want to try not to be disparaging um, to like other other companies, and everybody has different points of view. But in terms of the basics, um, vegetable tanning would be the process by which um, you would use like tree barks and other um, plants to tan the leather. And tanning, even though it has like the word tan in it, tanning is actually the process the process by which. Um, Leather is putrefied, prevented from rotting because it's a natural ingredient. And after the tanning, there's a lot of steps that have to dye and finish the leather. So once you prevented it from rotting, um, you put it generally in like a set of um, other ingredients, often chemicals, um, to color it and then finish it if you want things like waterproofing. I mean, the waterproofing for ours is actually in the recipe, so we don't finish it that way. But um, so there's kind of three steps, like there's the tanning, there's the dyeing, and there's the finishing. So vegetable tanning often gets a good marketing wrap because the first part of the process uses more natural ingredients. Now, what people don't talk about with vegetable tanning is that it uses like an inordinate amount of water because the, the skins have to sit in like these giant vats um, for a long time. It's a, it's, it's a longer process. If you're marketing a more slow fashion approach, that's actually good. The texture of a veg um, comes out a little bit more hard. And the, the word patina, like when that leather wears in really nicely, that's what we'd use when we're talking about veg. Um, ours um, is not intentionally not a vegetable tan leather, not just for environmental reasons, but we wanted that um, combination of, of structure and suppleness for easy packability. So we weren't going for the sort of Americana look. We were going for uh, a more refined look. So we use we use a combination of natural ingredients um, and chrome, which is the other um, process by which leather is tan. Um, chrome is naturally occurring in the environment. Um, the problem at most chrome tanneries is that um, chrome, when it's left to expose, can can morph into what's called chromium-6. If you've seen the movie like Aaron Brockovich with the water poison, that's the chemical that um, poisoned the water. So you never want to let chrome oxidize. And so you have to be really, really careful in any way you're tanning or dyeing. Um, and if, if you're doing chrome like we are, you have to be um, really thoughtful about the tanneries you use. And if you use veg, you have to make sure that the, the dyeing and finishing chemicals um, aren't aren't highly toxic either, even though the initial step uses extracts from tree barks and things like that. Hmm, interesting. Yeah. And what, what about the uh, some of the other buzzwords like um, like handcrafted or, or made in X Y Z? Yeah. Because usually you know you're sourcing parts from multiple places. Yeah. Yeah. I think um, 
I think you have to be careful about what you say, not just from a legal perspective, but if you want to do business in a way that um, represents integrity, I think you just have to be transparent about where everything is done. So for us, it's like um, handcrafted it, or we say made in Montreal because that's where they're made. But like we're very open that about the fact that our leather comes from Germany, our, our zippers are handmade in Switzerland, um, the rest of our hardware comes from Tuscany. And so I think that um, if you have nothing to hide, then disclosing your supply chain actually adds adds value because you can say where things are authentically from. Where people get in trouble is like taking from the Apple model of designed in California. Anytime you hear like designed in X, that's usually a flag that it's not made in, in X. It's actually made in, in Y place off in Asia. And um, that might that might connote things about the quality of that particular item. Right. Going to run into the uh, Shinola problem. Yeah. Right. Made in Detroit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And now they're going with built in Detroit. And, uh, you know, like Shinola, I'm sure, didn't have malicious intent because they they have a great um, watch. I mean, their leather goods are, I think, sampled in Detroit and made elsewhere in, in the U.S., but their watches are authentically built in Detroit. So was it like a horrible thing for them to say made in Detroit? Um, I know they got in a lot of trouble for it, and it's a sign for all of us that we should be really careful. But for me, um, like we're the first – ever company in our category to earn what's called certified B Corporation status, which is um, um, companies like Patagonia and Allbirds and Ben um, and Jerry's Jerry's is (laughs) another good one. Um, uh, Like it's a stamp of approval on your quality and ethics as is evidenced by um, third party audits. And so to be the first in the world in our category with this certification means like we're hyper ahead of the curve in terms of disclosing um, everything. And we're happy for customers to ask us questions. And, and that actually leads to greater trust in our mind when we're, we're able to operate in that way. So what is the like fashion or business community, entrepreneurship community like in Toronto? Yeah, um, Toronto, I think places like TechCrunch and Forbes have, have ranked it as either the top or one of the top uh, growth markets for tech and entrepreneurship in, in the world. Call it Silicon Valley North. Um, there's a great ecosystem of fellow entrepreneurs. It's a great place to do business. Um, the country's a great place to live. We're just really blessed. What I do find in a place like New York, and and I get inspired here every time um, by this, is that there's a whole um, sort of social set of entrepreneurs and investors that just enjoy meeting and hustling and um, on, a, on a regular basis versus, versus Toronto, even though um, in this growing scene, it still feels in some ways like the islands need to be connected to each other through that more social ecosystem. And so that's why I love coming down here once in a while also is to get that that jolt of inspiration because sometimes it can feel really lonely, especially in the fashion space. So we have big fintech in Toronto. We have big AI, um, like fashion and fashion tech have been have been slow to um, slower to catch up. Is it tough to operate as a Canadian company with a large U.S.? Like what's dealing with customs and, and back that yeah, kind of thing? We're really, really fortunate to have a um, – we were in this, like, a- accelerator, which was backed by UPS because they saw potential in us being able to export. And so we have this amazing arrangement with UPS. And because Canada and the U.S. have free trade uh, under NAFTA or what, you know, your president is calling USMCA for now, uh, for now <laughs> um, USMCA, but even um, – even without that, there's like a certain amount of goods per day that Americans can import via e-commerce that um, like the majority of our business is a U.S. is a U.S. business and there's no issues like packages get to New York and the East Coast like way faster than they get to the West Coast of Canada because there's such density of shipping here, too, that um, 
that you're able to do it really um, seamlessly. But without that, like, I don't know, I don't know where we'd be. There's all these services in Toronto that will like drive your goods over the border to Buffalo and ship them from there. So you can operate like a domestic shipper, but we're like UPS all the way and we have their great software and, and all that. And it's, it's no issue. Yeah. That's probably one of the biggest questions I get from guys. Cause they'll say like, I like this brand you reviewed, but they don't ship to Canada. What can, what can you get? Like if I had a filter on my website, which is like, I recommend greats, but greats doesn't ship. So here's this one. That's a huge, a huge thing. So I'm very conscious of that. Yeah. You know, in Canada we have, um, an e-commerce limit of, I think it's $20 a day before we have to pay duties. So you guys have $800 per person per day. So before duties have to be paid. Now, because our products are made in Canada, you wouldn't have to pay duties anyways. But even if somebody places a large order, it's no problem. But the average order for us isn't like $800. Our bags are about 500 bucks. So it's extra easy to ship without any concern versus like American brands coming to Canada. Those customers get hit with duties and a lot of people get pissed off about that. Yeah. Well, in, in Toronto too, you have like Indigo Books. Is there, there's, there are big fashion companies, but I, I guess there's not a and like a small incubated D to C yeah. space like there was. Yeah. So um, some like the, the top Canadian companies you might have heard of, like Shopify um, is based in Ottawa, our capital, but their biggest office is in, in, is in Toronto. Um, so they've been really supportive of us, like lending us their offices for certain commercials and record, recording. They featured us in certain pieces of content because they like our story. Um, Wealth Simple, which is almost like a, a betterment uh, for Canadians, has really uh, crushed it. Um, Hootsuite, um, what else would it be like a good ca- Canadian unicorn? I mean, there, there's a lot. There's a lot. Shopify, uh, Shopify pretty much covers it for most. I had yeah. no idea they were uh, Canada-based. That's, yeah. Wow. It was interesting. Last year when I was in, um, Monocle Magazine does these like Christmas newspapers and one of the cool moments for me was like Monocle profiled me and right beside me uh, was Toby, the founder of Shopify. And I was like, there, this is a disproportionate like level They're of like, success. We're the same. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Great placement. Um, so I have that frame somewhere, but yeah. Very cool. So you now, you're running David, you're, you're growing. So you said you'd mentioned a team. Like when did it go from just you to adding on some help? Yeah, so right at the beginning, um, I realized that I had a design vision and and, uh, I was able to understand the nuances and technicalities of materials, but I didn't have the technical expertise dealing with manufacturers. So I brought on a head of product at that time who is now uh, part-time because she just had her first uh, child. And then in terms of marketing and stuff and, and photography, we have people we regularly work with, but it's more on an outsourced basis. And then seasonally, we'll need help in the warehouse. So it's still a really lean team. Um, uh, it, it was, it was a few months before I realized like, shit, like I need, I need some help, um, on the technical side with, with this stuff. And, but we try to keep it really lean because, um, by not bloating our costs, we can keep that mid range price point for ultra luxury quality accessible to our customers. Now, have you raised money or would you, or are you thinking about that? Yeah. So, um, it's an interesting question. Um, there was a point like after our beta run, I think when we had just worked with you where we had gotten the first production run sold out really quickly and we sensed um, excitement, but we needed money to do like our first large production run. And we're like, what are we going to do? I don't know. Um, And it was a nerve wracking time. And then I got this cold call from this guy in the New York area who had bought one of our first bags. And he's like, I've been looking for a bag like this for 30 years. I'm super impressed with the ethos of the company. Like, what are you doing from a funding perspective? And I said, funding, like, we just did like a beta product. Have you seen our website? Like, we're, we're nowhere yet. And he, um, yeah, he wrote us a check to like formally get us off the ground. And to date, that's the only funding we've raised to date. Um, we continue to receive interest. Um, 
periodically from the investment community. I was talking to John, like it's something that is both exciting, but um, I proceed with caution at the same time because I think the demands of a lot of those in, of, of those investors may not always, I mean, they may sometimes, but may not always jive with um, how I run the business and the growth expectations that sometimes get put on you um, from a venture capital perspective and how this sort of brand ends up look, looking and feeling may not always be um, in, in the founder's vision all the time when they, when they raise that kind of money. So like I'm having the conversations, but um, I'm thinking carefully about whether I want to pursue that type of stuff. We're in an interesting spot now where I think five years ago, every expectation was you have an idea. Well, in the, in the early 2000s, it was you have an idea, get an IPO and just go off there. That was a tech boom. And then we were in a phase where it's like you have an idea, go raise money from VCs and then go off and do it. And now after like Uber, Lyft and WeWork and all these giant companies have just shedded all this value, it's, everybody's stepping back and kind of like, you know, if you grow a, a business very intentionally, it could be a good business. And so it's, I think yeah. it's really interesting to watch the way that people have now uh, there's actually a huge story today about Away. Uh, if you mm. saw that, there's a really toxic it. culture at Away, and there's a huge report in The Verge about it. And mm. it's like Away was one of those high flying unicorns, and they're all over the place. But is it a toxic environment because it grew so fast? And you don't really yeah. know. I'm so, I'm sad to hear that too, because like Away is one of those stories I followed, and it seems like a great story of a, a women led company really like crushing it, and it's really I- impressive what they've done, and they're sort of adjacent to our category so I can like cheer them on without being too too jealous or anything like that but I'm sad to hear that that um you know that story came out I'll have to have a look I haven't seen it um, it was literally like just like 25 minutes before we started recording so. yeah so um it is it is interesting though um the the badge of honor that seems to exist when you really grow your team or raise like you know 10 or 20 million dollars of capital that seems to be dissipating a little bit. I think a lot of people are seeing value in lifestyle quality businesses that are highly profitable, but good for employees, good for supply chains and good for the founders in terms of lifestyle and family and things like that. I had to get over that hump being like a young Wall Street style partner. It was always like, how big can you get and how how best can you, you like, it's always you got to be the best and not just the best, but like better than anyone else. And like you step on their face and now it's, you know, you have to strip strip that ego. I've been doing that for a few years and saying like, what kind of business do I really want to build? And that might not be the one with the most employees or the most customers, but if it's a sustainable business that demonstrates that this way of doing business um, is good for for the world and the supply chain, like that's a success to me. And I'm not just, um, I'm not just qualifying it or caveating. Like I, I authentically believe that that's a good way to run a business. Um, not always being the business, but uh, the, the biggest, but being the best um, at what you do. So like best case scenario, what does David look like in five years? Yeah, I think what we look like in five years is um, a significantly expanded set of products. Um, we have the core styles, but that includes like new colorways, new linings, the um, the option for personalization, but also the expansion into new verticals where our ethos fit, whether that um, is footwear or skincare or other things that we've looked at as um really desired by men. And that, that comes from talking to our customers about like, what kind of content do you want from us? I mean, at the beginning, it's like how to evaluate quality leather. And there's still a lot of demand for that type of education, but it's like now they're saying, can you recommend some, some furniture or, you know, other like life investment pieces? Um, so I want David to be the go-to destination for classic high-end goods for men. Roots. That's the other one I couldn't think of. They're Roots. out of Toronto. And Roots wow. is a good example of they started with leather goods. Mm-hmm. They expanded to apparel. They have like 
home furniture and everything. Yeah. That's a good model. Bought my buy American private equity. Also some cultural issues. Yes. I know. I was yeah. there. I was there when I got bought. Really? I, I was working with them at, at my old startup. Got it. And uh it was it was very tumultuous and now yeah, I got some good stuff, interesting yeah. stuff. It seems tricky to decide. Like, if you have a brand that's really good at something and you're known for something, like you guys are leather goods, leather bags specifically, mm-hmm. and then as an entrepreneur, you have a million ideas. Mm-hmm. Do you expand and, and put your ideas under that umbrella of the brand that you're growing, or do you start different brands? Because it's so hard yeah. to get a brand off the ground, but sometimes you see brands that kind of get diluted because they add too many things. It's a know? brilliant It's a brilliant question. Um, it's like and, Shinola. It's like I don't think of Shinola. It's like they make bikes and they make yeah. turntables and they make watches. It's like yeah. what yeah. is Shinola? It, but it stands for Detroit. It's like you have to have, you know, the, like you're saying, yeah. it's the ethos. Yeah, the so it, the it's like um, in this millennial generation of D2C, which I actually have a lot of issues with um, in terms of how it's unfolded. Um, there has been a movement to growing fast by putting a stake in the ground in a certain product category. And when growth is expiring or flattening out in that category, it's like, no, we're not a a mattress company. We're actually like a sleep. We just like we're in the world of sleep. Um, but but consumers don't believe you if you haven't um, put your stake in the ground by saying like we represent something greater about empowering humans um, in their on their way to sleep. Right. So the first um, story you put out about your ethos and what you represent is really um, is really adhered to by consumers. And for us, it was like bags were always our first category. But when we talk about our company, it's about representing a way of doing business more deeply um, under which bags are our first category. So I could see other verticals being housed under the David brand. Like maybe those verticals like look a little bit different in terms of branding or there's different websites or something like that. Um, but I think it'll, you know, once we've earned customers trust in bags and we're still in the process of doing that, um, we'll be able to branch out more easily than having to like pivot our entire story because we pretended we were a bag company so that we could grow more quickly at the beginning. Um, so I think it's, it's, it's being careful and thoughtful at the beginning. And a lot of, a lot of brands, um, aren't because they want to grow really, really quickly and we're kind of the opposite. Yeah. Makes sense. And what's on the like near future product horizon for David right now? Yeah, people have been asking for um, crossbodies, um, laptop cases, um, uh, more like accessory pouches, um, a bigger a bigger briefcase is one they've been asking for, a bigger backpack. So there's like a whole bunch of things we're working on. Um, we don't release things till we feel that they're really ready. So it's kind of the pace of a couple a, a year right now. Um, but that's kind of what's on the horizon for us. Nice. It's got to be so hard to satisfy everybody because like with briefcases, like we were talking to um, Stuart and Lau and they're like, all right, this is our small briefcase. And I'm like, mm, I want a smaller one because I, I only have a 13 inch laptop. And, you know, but then I'm sure other people are like, no, give me like the extra large double wide, you know, for my weekend trips. Yeah. And, and it's interesting. Like it depends on the customer. I had, uh, I have most customers who end up not buying the briefcase, like the ones who do love it and they don't return it. The ones who don't are like, I need something bigger. I want an extra um, zipper for my laptop. And I had one customer recently who was like, no, it's actually like too big. Like you said on the website, it was two inches, but like I measured it and it was like 2.25. And I was like, Oh God, like you're the first person who's ever said it's, it's too, it's too small. Right. So you kind of have to look at, um, how you want to grow, what the market's demanding. And we're not in the business of like, we're, we're small batch, um, made really carefully, but we're not like made to order. Um, there's a difference in that. So we have to be careful about, um, how we, how we jump. Yeah. 
And what's your best seller? Is it is it the weekend bag? The, yeah, the weekend yeah. bag has really crushed it for us. Um, it it's it's unique. Um, I think versus the version you had, we actually thickened the leather and made a couple of other minor adjustments. Um, but uh, the combination of the internal laptop sleeve, which is like rare in weekenders, mm-hmm. the expandable capacity, the suppleness of the leather, which keeps some structure but allows for packing. Like we had one customer take this on um, a week-long motorcycle journey as his o- only bag because because it had the laptop sleeve and he could fit a whole bunch of clothes in it. So the versatility in this bag um, combined with uh, the look and, and the re-resips and stuff has really resonated with people. Um, so that's kind of our, our hero product. I know I took the slim briefcase and I shoved it in the front of one of those city bikes with a bungee cord and I like nice. rode around the city with it for a week and I'm like, this is very durable, yeah. Yeah, thank you. Could no, caught, you... In the, caught, caught in the rain and ruined my shoes, but my bag was okay. <laughs> <laughs> the leather is waterproof and it's not because we spray on some waterproofing too. So um, I'm glad it survived um, and we would expect it to. So if there's ever any issues, you better let me know. Yeah, that's the cool thing too is like, I mean, with with the weekend bag that I have, first generation, but I mean, I, I throw it around. Like I'm not... Like, it, it does look high-end, but I'm not going to treat it like it is. Yeah, don't I mean? be precious with it. Yeah. And that's the thing we have to convince our customers, too. There's a level of education because a lot of them say, it's so pretty. I don't want to use it. It's like it belongs on a shelf, like as a piece of art. And we're like, no, like, this is German bullskin. So it's a refined aesthetic, but we designed it that way um, so that you could look really cool while throwing it around. And we want you to throw it around. And we have, like, leather care products now that they can use to look after it and stuff like that. So, so yeah. Cool. Well, we have a section where we do a series of rapid-fire questions one or two word answers that you haven't prepared for. Are you ready? Uh, I think I'm ready. Let's do it. (laughs) All right. Uh, Loafers or sneakers? Sneakers. Spring, summer, or fall, winter? Spring, summer. All right. Morning or evening shower? Morning. Jeans, chinos, or trousers? Chinos. Navy or charcoal if you only had one suit? Navy. All right, and, and if you have a big day, you're in the shower and you want to get pumped up, what song are you listening to? Oh, that's so embarrassing. Right right now, um, I'm listening to the great Canadian artist Nelly Furtado and her song Powerless, uh, which is about like not giving a shit about what others think and like doing things your own way. Kind of kind of cheesy, but like it's been running through my head, so I figured I'd just be open and vulnerable about that one. That's good. Mine's been Lizzo. I've been listening to Lizzo all week. I nice. Know what it is. Uh, yeah. I, my wife is obsessed with Lizzo. My wife is too. <laughs> yeah. She was on it really early. She was like, this is going to be big. And I was like, okay. She has called. She's called us several of them. But yeah. that's great. So you're working on new products, looking to maybe raise money, maybe just expand the brand at your own pace. Very cool. And, uh, like, is that, what are you most excited for in the next 12 months? Yeah. Um, I think, uh, I really sense with the launch of our new brand and website, and that's not just the name, the minor main and name change we just talked about, but the whole look, feel and photography in the last few months has been completely revamped. And so we've gone from, uh, like, we've definitely seen an uptick in the pace of sales, but also people just like getting the message and the feel. So I'm excited to actually, like we've grown organically with virtually no paid marketing. Um, and so to really like double down um, on investing in the customer on that marketing front is really exciting for us because we know if the bags are selling organically like all over the world, then um, there's probably an opportunity to really scale that on a paid basis. Very cool. We got to check out the Veed. 
Uh, do, the, do the passports sell well in the U.S.? Because there's a statistic that most people have never left the country and don't even have a passport. In Canada, I bet everybody has them. Well, mm. Canadians are like among the most well-traveled. But yes, those do sell sell well. I need one that has four slots. Four like, slots. You okay. can have like one for me and the three kids. Right. Or like my wife and three kids. So we'll talk about that offline. But yes, okay. everybody can check out David, the, week, the Weekender, the Backpack. Very cool stuff. Thanks for coming on, Andy. Thank great, you so much for having me. Great to have you on the podcast. And we'll talk to you guys next week.